0: All right, so this is uh, installment two on fasting, and so I'm not gonna review everything from last week. Um, So fasting is one of the spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines aren't rungs on a ladder whereby we climb up to God to be acceptable with Him. Spiritual disciplines are like blind Bartimaeus putting himself in the road and calling out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Or Lord, have mercy upon me, because he wanted to see. They are avenues through which God promises to convey and communicate his grace to us. And so we often talk about the means of grace. And the four main ones are, you know, obviously the word, the sacraments, prayer, and we also should add fellowship because it's so important to grow in grace together. The spiritual disciplines are extensions of the means of grace. So we think of the word, we can hear a sermon, we can study ourselves, we can meditate, we can memorize. Or prayer, we can pray in groups, we can pray in solitude, We could do a journal and write our prayers out. And so there's a number of ways we can even add like service and evangelism. Not only are we blessing other people, but we actually are uplifted in our faith as we express our faith with others by word and deed. So fasting is one of the spiritual disciplines. Let me just add that feasting is a spiritual discipline. We feast unto the Lord. We enjoy good food and drink, family and friends, as an avenue to meet with God together and enjoy his good gifts and have, as it were, an appetizer towards the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So Christmas time, Thanksgiving time, feasting are also spiritual disciplines, But there's this other spiritual discipline that we don't practice, or some of you may be very disciplined at this, and I would love to talk with you at some point, but we don't typically in our culture practice as much the spiritual discipline of fasting. We may feast, but we don't fast as much. As we come to the New Testament, we read such passages in Paul where he really warns against ascetic practices, this self-denial for the sake of self-denial. And so, y'all are familiar with the passages like in 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says, "...for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear." That's a disturbing sentence, and he goes on to say, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. Huh. Let's see. Hold a second. I have omitted something I need to include. Let's see. Huh, that's funny. I I skipped a chapter. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Whole little conversation here. Um, let's see. Oh yeah. All right. Let me let me let me uh, start this way. All right. First Timothy four. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right, so we're going like, like Paul is teaching against, warning against folks. They're going to teach us to abstain from foods. You notice Well, then, that's not the only time, because in Colossians, he goes, "...since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch." All right, so what's his point there? Well, then he goes on to say, "...these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings." Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And so we see Paul is saying, look, if you, if you, if you think you're going to clean up your life by imposing on yourself a host of rules of things not to do, they don't have power to change you. Well, 1 Corinthians 8, he goes on to say, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. But we're talking about fasting, right? So Paul's saying the disciplines of self-denial are fraught with dangers. Mere self-denial for the sake of self-denial is fraught with dangers. Like a host of other things, Paul is speaking of certain rules and self-denials and aesthetic practices for the point of making one acceptable with God. Self-reliance, personal autonomy, and pride are the result of that or what drive that, and that's a deep sin tendency that in effect it would keep you from Jesus. Our rule-keeping can keep us from Jesus we can rely on ourselves in our comparison with other people to forget or overlook our desperate need and misery and guilt and our total dependence upon Jesus and his work on our behalf. And that's the essence of the spiritual life. At the same time, Scripture also speaks a ton about fasting, fasting. It's all over the Old Testament. And we get to the New Testament, it's spoken of much less, but still affirmed. Such that in the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus says, but when you fast, not if you fast. In the New Testament, it's it's an assumption of a kingdom member. Again, not somebody who's trying to get into the kingdom. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount The Beatitudes, Jeremy preached on them this summer, is that you're in the kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How does a kingdom citizen live but when you fast? Don't do it so that everybody looks at you. Do it so that the God who sees in secret will reward you. Huge. There's a hunger we have for the notice and applause and approval of people that's supposed to be filled with a hunger that God looks upon us and is delighted in us. And then Jesus makes the best statement about fasting when the disciples of John the Baptist come to him and say, hey, look, your disciples aren't fasting, but we fast, like, what's going on with you? And Jesus says, it's a wonderful passage for you to meditate on, do a little journaling on. Jesus says, look, while the bridegroom is with the bride, you don't fast. It's a time of celebration and joyful feasting. The long-awaited Messiah is here. It wouldn't be appropriate to fast, but a time is coming when I'm going to be taken away, and then my disciples will fast, and that includes us. So underlying that fast is this ache, this longing for the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, a hunger for him. Well, Piper says, the discipline of self-denial is fraught with dangers, perhaps only surpassed by the dangers of indulgence. And that's where we get with fasting. 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And that's an unnerving statement to think. Am I really dominated by things, things other than Christ? Such that we could go then to the parable of the sower, And Jesus casts the word, but then there's a host of soils in which, you know, the roots can't go deep, or they get strangled, or they get crowded out, and Jesus explains it this way, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so we have to think what are the desires for other things that are in our lives that we might not admit to, but that really occupy more of our hunger than an express real, real time, factual hunger for the Lord Jesus. And sometimes it's hard to look into our hearts. You know, Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's this murky, or Proverbs 20, you know, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but the man of understanding draws it out. It's an awesome proverb because it's just so real. Our hearts are deep waters. It's hard to work through all the motivations and desires going on there. So, desires for other things, there's the enemy, and the only weapon that will triumph is a deeper hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, according to Piper, wonderful Piper statement, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Let me just say that one more time. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. And so you recall last week I mentioned the underlying rationale for fasting is the soul and the body are interwoven and interconnected. What we do with our soul affects our body. What we do with our body affects our soul. That's why throughout the New Testament, we are sanctified in our bodies. Very important, in our bodies. We can't compartmentalize a spiritual, intellectual, emotional from the whole-orbed physical uh, nature of our existence. So once again, perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetites for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. So last week I said a fast is symbolic of and an embodiment of my our need for god or desire for god or hunger for god or appetite for god so here's another piper quote the greatest enemy of hunger for god is not poison but apple pie it is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world it is not the x-rated video but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Now, once again, once again, don't, out of contact. Luke 14, um, there's those three guys that make excuses. One of them is I got married, I'm enjoying my wife. I don't wanna come to your banquet. But that is a piercing parable, and we've, we've gone over this as a church, I, I encourage you to go back through it, and you can say, a husband too, um, but a wife and a husband are incredible conduits to know God better. Okay, sorry, I just totally derailed the, all right, uh, the greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts, and the most deadly appetites are not for true And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. So how does fasting help us keep from turning gifts into gods, is the deal. And that's kind of maybe a basic statement. And I've liked uh, Piper this week. I, I hadn't really looked into his book, and he's real good about saying, in addition to what we've already said, that fasting is a test. So in Jesus' famous fast, so much is going on, and a lot of what's going on is that Jesus is identifying with Israel in the wilderness, if you recall, and that's why he keeps quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And Deuteronomy 8, uh, 2 and 3 is a really important passage for us. And that's one of the passages he quotes from, actually with the first temptation. And so as Israel wandered in the wilderness, Jesus goes out in the wilderness. As the Lord led Israel through the wilderness, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. As Israel wanders the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus fasts for 40 days. He's like recapitulating the history of Israel in his person, whereas they failed, he succeeds. So they can't be a saving people. He has to be the Savior for the people. That's what's going on. So the devil's trying to derail Jesus for his mission. So Jesus fasts in preparation for the testings of the temptations of the devil. And Jesus' fasting itself is part of the testing to see what's in his heart. Because in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3, "...and you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep his commands or not." and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the wilderness was a test for Israel to see if they really were going to regard God as worthy of their worship or not. Jesus's Wilderness fast is a test. Are you gonna really be my kind of Messiah or not? Am I gonna be your God or not? So what happens in the test of a fast? We ask ourselves questions, like what controls me, really? What do I have to have? What am I really after? Uh, Where do I go for comfort and satisfaction? What do I really hunger for? What do I really worship? Do we have only an appetite for the gifts, or is our true appetite for God himself who gives them? Can we fast from God's good gifts in order to focus ourselves on feasting on God himself? Well, um... With that extended introduction, let's go to the uh, three buckets of reasons for fast in the Bible, and that's one of them. That's the, probably the main one. What we just talked about is the first reason, the first bucket that encompasses a lot is to deepen devotion for God. So one reason is to deepen devotion for God, and that's what we just covered. Um Along with that, as part of that, you just find that fasting tends to be involved in defining moments or sacred moments. Like a pivotal moment, you find God's meeting me with himself and I'm feasting on who God is. What's my natural response to that? Well, I want to deprive myself of other comforts and ways to satiate my hunger in order to feast and focus more exclusively on him. So Elijah, Moses, Jesus, Anna in the temple is like that. Even the church in Antioch in Acts 13, they're worshiping and fasting, and that's when the Lord says, set apart to me Barnabas and Saul. All right, the second reason, so deepen our devotion for God, the second reason is to seek guidance and discern God's will. And you find that in Scripture, too. Again, uh, Jesus' second and third temptation. um, Let's see. What were they? Jump off the temple. And what was the other one, you all recall? What's that? Yeah, bow down, I give you the kingdoms. Thank you. So it was effectively, bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms. Jesus was promised all the kingdoms of the world. That would be the easy way to get them instead of having to be a sacrificial redeemer, right? It's a temptation to go about it a different direction. So part of Jesus' fast is to be prepared for the temptation of the devil. At that point, Jesus could have been derailed from his mission. So we can scale it back and go, oh, oh, if Jesus hadn't fasted, he might not have been prepared. He might have been derailed and we wouldn't have been redeemed. Acts 13:2, the church in Antioch, you get the idea they're seeking to know how to be involved in God's mission in Antioch. And the church collectively is fasting and praying. And God says, "Set apart to me Barnabas and Saul." So, Calvin says, whenever men and women are to pray to God concerning a great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer. For fasting is an aid to prayer, it focuses our prayers, it gives an earnestness to our prayers. Again, it's symbolic of and embodiment of our utter dependence upon God and His resources to do what we could never do. So, we're in a nomination period. Acts 14.23 is a similar statement. In Acts 14.23, Barnabas and Saul, Paul, are appointing elders in the churches where they ministered, and they do so with prayer and fasting. You get the idea that part of their prayer and fasting is to discern God's will, surely God's blessing on the officers the church is recognizing and they're confirming. It's like seeking God's will about it. And so Don Whitney says, fasting does not change God's hearing so much as it changes our praying. I think that resonates with me, uh, how dependent and, let's see, there's a word, not superficial, but like formal, my praying, but fasting helps express, symbolize, embody the fact that I am desperate for what only God can do here. Well, Judges 20 is a tragic chapter. It's, it's awful. Y'all recall that, Judges 20, how terrible it is? And uh, the tribe of Benjamin committed an awful crime, just terrible. I mean, it's like in the Judges, you know, you go real low on what human depravity can do, even among God's people, you know. I mean, we hardly need Judges 20 to tell us that, but it does lay it out for us. And uh, so the 11 tribes gathered together to punish the tribe of Benjamin Which is also tragic, that tribes would have to punish a tribe, a whole tribe. So you get, like, all these fighting men assemble against, like, 30,000 Benjamite fighting men. You got, like, 100,000 or something. And the first day, the rest of the tribes of Israel inquire of the Lord, then go into battle, and they're defeated by Benjamin. These, like, 30,000 soldiers just whip them. Well, the second day, they inquire of the Lord, God says, and then they go into battle, and they're defeated again, which is remarkable. All right, so then they're just undone on day three, and all these fighting men inquire of the Lord, and they fast all day. I mean, it's like God's looking for their um, unburdening their self-reliance and sense of strength, And God says, go back into the battle. I'm going to promise you the victory. And so the fasting symbolized and embodied a more concerted seeking after God's will and earnestness upon God to give success in their efforts. It expressed this dependence, this need, this humility, this earnestness, and this focus. Not relying on the fact that we totally outnumber Benjamin, but relying on the fact that this is like, God's discipline and we're dependent upon him and one of my favorite passages is Daniel 9 and in Daniel 9 so Daniel is close to 70 years now in Babylon like he went to Babylon in his teens middle school early high school to exile away from his parents in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and you recall, they do a kind of fast there. You know, don't give me all the wonderful wine and meat, but we're going to eat meat, and, uh, vegetables and bread and water. I and mean, it's kind of a fast too. Like, we're not going to gorge ourselves on the sumptuous delicacies of Babylon because we're afraid that's going to take our hearts and we're going to become like Babylon. That's what was going on. It was, a, it was a strong mark that no, like, we want our hearts to be gods. And so we're going to be very careful about the good things you can provide us, okay? But Daniel nine is later, seventy years later, and he, and so Ezekiel's already already written. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is like they 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 read each other's work, and so Ezekiel is written, and in Ezekiel twenty five he God prophesies that his people are going to be seventy years in Babylon. And so now Daniel has Ezekiel's prophecy as an old man, and he's uh he recognizes that they're getting close. And like this this longing, this deep soul longing that Israel would be released from captivity and get to return to the promised land and rebuild the temple and resume the sacrifices is just welling up within Daniel's heart and mind. So he reads Ezekiel, recognizes the time is almost upon them and doesn't just go, well good, God ordained it. He recognizes that God may promise, but God's promises are brought down into our reality through the means he's appointed, being prayer. And so he beseeches the Lord in repentance and fasting and prayer. It's beautiful. It's an extended fast, for like three weeks, and uh, it's it's a limited, like, you know, bread or something. So he's praying for God to carry out his promises and accomplish his will, Um. And it's important to note that, that most of the prayer is repentance. He's saying they don't deserve God's gracious help, but God abounds in mercy because so they can pray that way. Now, Ezra, you know, is after Daniel. And so at the time of Ezra, they're actually returning to the promised land. And so a group is going back to the promised land. It's a 900-mile trip. And they don't have a military escort. And so they're afraid of the surrounding nations. And Ezra leads all the people in a fast for God's care, provision, safety, direction on the way back to Israel. And we could add Nehemiah 1.4. You know, Nehemiah is prior to Ezra. and Or, you know, around that time. And, no, no, no. I, I may have that confused. Um, so Nehemiah is also praying about the return too. But what's happened is they've already returned they built their houses, but they hadn't built the temple. News goes back to Nehemiah. He hears that the temple is rebuilt, and he turns to fasting and prayer that God would realize his, his promises. We don't have enough time to go through Isaiah 58, but Isaiah 58 is one of the more extended treatments of fasting, but it's fasting gone wrong. But in the, in the uh, process, God says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. All right, so the people have deprived themselves of food, but then they mistreated folks. And Isaiah is saying, wait a second, depriving yourself of food and feeling what hungry people feel ought not to make you abusive, it ought to make you empathetic and to serve those who have a lot of physical challenges. So another thing is it gives guidance for how to be used in the kingdom. All right. The third is to express grief over sin and concern over tragedy. To express grief over sin and concern over tragedy. And that's the great bulk of fasting in the Old Testament. So the only regular fast in the Old Testament was the Day of Atonement, one time a year. And that was the day of days in which the people enacted God's atoning sacrament for them. And that's the two goats. Slit one, you fling that blood on the Holy of Holies, and the other you send out in the wilderness. The two aspects of atonement. One, the blood covers us. Two, God's anger is turned away from us. Two aspects of atonement. But on that day, the people were called to afflict themselves, literally, afflict themselves. And so we ask, what are they supposed to add to the cost of paying for sin by self-flagellation? And of course, that's not the way the covenant of grace works. But they afflict themselves in order to symbolize and embody that sin really is a big deal. It's not a light matter. This isn't just a triviality of their yearly calendar, Rather, it costs God a whole lot to cover sin and to accomplish forgiveness. They're identifying with how much it costs God. So the fast expresses grief and sadness and sorrow for what we've done and humility and dependence on God to cover it and to forgive. So another one is uh, 1 Samuel 7, 6. And that's when the, the Philistines have oppressed Israel And so it's a stirring passage they go, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted all that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. Expressing their grief over their sin. Daniel 9, again, the bulk of it is that we have sinned. Or Joel 2, that's a congregational fast. Joel 2 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Express the grief and sadness, weightiness of their sin. Or Jonah 3 is probably, you know, it's a very memorable one. Jonah preaches God's judgment, excuse me, yeah. Jonah preaches God's judgment to Nineveh. And against all expectation... These pagan Assyrians, uh, from the king on down, they express remorse over sin, repentance to new life, and they fast in sackcloth and ashes. Stunning that this pagan empire would humble themselves in fasting for grief over sin and fear of judgment. Well, not only is sin uh, a motive for fasting, but also just fear of a tragedy. And so, one of the, so there's various great ones. But if you call 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat calls a national fast. And what's happening is this great multitude of warriors have just teamed in this you know, wide open space, and he's comparing his soldiers to those from these enemies, and they're overwhelmingly outnumbered. And it says in Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. And his fast is a response to the visceral realization that he does not have the strength to stand against his enemies, that God must save him, utter dependence among God. Well, think about also Esther 4.16, when Mordecai, when um, Naaman is trying to trick the king into exterminating all the Jews. Mordecai warns Esther, Esther's afraid to go before the king because if he doesn't extend accept her, she's going to be killed. And Esther, who hadn't exactly been wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, she has this really reshuffling of where her heart is. And she says to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. God, oh, yeah, so me. God, we're undone. You must turn the heart of the king. That's what her fast is about. Well, David does it in Psalm 109. There's this personal fast, not corporate, but personal for deliverance from enemies. He says in verse 24, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. Why does he do it? Verse 26, help me, O Lord, my God, save me according to your steadfast love. It's just utter humility and dependence upon God. And then, you know, we have sick ones among among us, and it's really interesting to see how David fasts for those who are sick. And we just recognize that we don't have the resources for healing. And, you know, even this enemy of David's that started treating him badly, in Psalm 35, 13, he says, I fasted for him when he was sick. I really like that. We can think of 2 Samuel 12 also. He fasts for that little baby. And um, it's just, you know, if we think, why? Like, why do that? Once again, it symbolizes, expresses, embodies the fact that the resources come from God and not from us. And um, body-soul connected. Our earnestness in prayer uh, increases. So those are three reasons for fasting. Again, deepen devotion for God. Ex- um, seek guidance and discern God's will. And express grief over sin and concern over tragedy. I sent out a letter. It was posted on realm Um for our congregational fast, 6 p.m. Monday to 6 p.m. Tuesday. If you're able, or even a part, if you're not, and uh, gave certain things for us to be praying through as a body. I really let's let's really do have time of concerted prayer. And if you're able to fast through it, and just recognize that we need God more than all things, and uh, we need Him to grant us guidance and resources to do what He has for us individually and as a church. All right, let's pray. Thanks, Father, for uh, your grace to us again, and we praise you that you are the one our hearts want. We pray that we as a people would feast upon you, you alone, and receive your good gifts as aids towards that. We lay our hearts before you. We thank you for redeeming us by the blood of the Lamb. And bless your people, encourage them, bless our time of worship. May you lift up our hearts to heaven. In Christ's name, Amen.